HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. On a lovely day, you have tuned in to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Every week on The Farm Report, I talk about the ins and outs of food and food production here in the U.S. and beyond. Off air, I'm the executive director of Heritage Radio Network. And today we are going to be talking about the future of meat. We are continuing our series that we're producing in collaboration with Slow Food USA, getting ready for their June Slow Meat Conference out in Denver, Colorado. And today we are taking a trip down to Texas. We're going to be talking crickets with Nathan Allen from Aspire. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us on, Aaron. So you are, are calling in from Austin, Texas, is that right? That's correct. Awesome. And so uh, give us a little bit of the, the lay of the land. Uh, you know, Aspire is not your, your typical, um, quote unquote, protein um, company or rancher or farmer or any of the words one would typically associate when we think we're starting off a conversation about the meat industry. So um, why are you guys involved with the Slow Meat Conference in Denver? How does that all fit in? So we're growing crickets specifically for human consumption at the farm here in Austin. And part of our goal is to introduce entomophagy, the eating of insects, into the Western diet. And we know that Westerners are a little trepidatious about eating insects. There's a little skepticism there, and that's perfectly natural. But by taking the insects and turning them into abstracted products that still allow us to get the nutrition, like the protein, uh, we can get more people to eat this sustainable, uh, more resource-efficient form of protein. And so in hand-in-hand in hand with slow meat, um, we're advocating for less meat of better quality and equitably sourced. So can you eat crickets if you're a vegetarian? 
That's an interesting question. We actually have a lot of vegetarians who are advocates of eating insects. Uh, at the end of the day, it depends on why you're a vegetarian. We're certainly not going to argue that insects aren't sentient species, um, but there's a lot of vegetarians who have made that diet choice uh, for health reasons or environmental reasons or for reasons around the humane treatment of animals. And we answer all of those questions. So we actually have a number of, of prominent vegetarians uh, within the entomophagy community. So I know that, like, I have enjoyed um, crickets, um, you know, down in Mexico City, sipping a beer at the bar in a bowl full of peanuts and chilies. But you used a word in there, abstracted products. So you're not talking about um, us using crickets more as bar snacks um, in their kind of whole form. You're talking about something else. That's right. And we actually do both. Uh, We provide whole insects, and we have a lot of chefs. Uh, who take those and then serve them in restaurants, a uh, very similar vein to what you'd have in Oaxaca, uh, cricket tacos, uh, crickets as a salad topper, um, and crickets as bar snacks. But then we also take the crickets and we roast them and grind them into a cricket powder. And now you can take this cricket powder and add it into baking recipes like chips and crackers, granolas, cookies, muffins, Uh, to get a nutritional boost without changing the flavor or the texture of the the end product. Uh, And you can, we've seen some some really innovative creative uses with the powder, everything from incorporating it into pasta to pizza dough, um, incorporating into the the mash for a beer. So we've, we've got a lot of people trying some really creative recipes with this new ingredient. So it's exciting that, uh, that, that we've had such positive feedback, uh, both from the general population here in Austin and around the country, but also from groups like Slow Food, who uh, can see the, the reason why this is a really good piece of the puzzle that we need to solve. Yeah, I think it's an interesting spot for Slow Food, because I have to say, like, when we're talking about abstracted products, I mean, for me, when I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat and what, I, what type of a food future I want to see, I feel like... Sometimes I break things into two camps. Like one camp is taking us closer to like the vision that I feel like the Jetsons put in front of us many moons ago where we'd be like, you know, eating, consuming our food in the form of kind of like pills and capsules. And then the other is, you know, heading in a path that that leads us, you know, that ends at a plate uh, of food that, you know, my great grandparents would recognize. And I always feel a, a little bit nervous when I feel like things are taking that direction of the Jetsons, um, which I guess I kind of feel like crickets do. Um, so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the kind of, uh, are there kind of gustatory or um, like pleasure or flavor components that people are kind of talking about? Or are we really looking at kind of meeting a protein requirement and, and providing an alternative for this kind of protein specific replacement, um, less of a culinary journey here? No, I think we're definitely looking at the first one. Um, now, when we're talking about eating insects, it's important to remember that, that here in the U.S. And, and really the Western societies, we're kind of the odd ones out. Most people around the world view insects as a normal food source. Um, estimations are as high as 80% of the countries in the world have cultural traditions of eating insects. And in a lot of these places, the, the market price for the insects is higher than things like chicken or pork or beef. Uh, because the people, they relish the flavor, they relish the cultural component to their, you know, their gastronomical heritage. Um, and so here in, you know, here in Austin, we've had chefs 
playing around with it. And a lot of them, they love the flavor. Um, when you have insects that are grown specifically for human consumption on a, a high-quality diet, you get really good flavors there. So, for instance, the crickets that we grow when they're just dry roasted with nothing added, uh, they have a, a flavor profile very similar to a sunflower seed or a, a roasted soybean, toasted pumpkin seed. So a very light, nutty, toasty, oaty flavor, which is great because then it can be incorporated through the powder into a lot of different recipes, but it still maintains that pleasurable flavor, kind of that salty, umami, uh, meaty goodness. And so it does work well for something like a taco or a bar snack. Um, and, and from a chef's perspective, you know, if you're looking for a new ingredient to explore, new flavors and textures to incorporate into your, your menu, you know, this is a whole new vista of exploration because every insect species is going to have subtle differences in flavor. Every, uh, every different species, depending on the way that they're grown and the food that they're given, they're going to have a different flavor. So it's, it's, a, it's an exciting time uh, culinarily, I think, for, for edible insects to start in, being introduced to the market. So you're not proposing a, a future where I'm drinking Soylent Green or some version of that. Thank well, you. I, I think that's actually the beauty of it. We'll be able to do both. We'll be mm. able to do the, you know, the cricket tacos just the way that your grandmother in Oaxaca remembers on the plate. But then we can also turn it into the powder, and we can we can incorporate it into these you know futuristic visions of food. You know, if you can imagine 3D food printing, you're going to have to get your proteins in your 3D printed food some way. And if it comes from insects and it's abstracted, then you're going to get all those nutritional benefits. We're going to have all the sustainable benefits on the back end, um, but you'll still be able to, to, to have that in that form. Well, I want to back up a little bit and, and talk about the kind of production and life cycle um, of these plants. So you guys are working with a, uh, let's see, a 13,000 square foot space Um you know, your website talks about providing your crickets with only USDA organic feed and, and, mm -hmm. and filtered water. So take us, take us to the beginning. You know, if I wanted to set up something similar here in New York, I mean, is, do I just go online and order like baby crickets? Do you have, is there like a, <laughs> like a hatchery and the growing out all happen in one space? Um, where, where do you kind of get the initial kind of starter seed, if you will? Well, so it, it, this is a brand-new industry, so it's, it's been a lot of trial and error. There's definitely been some reinventing of the wheel. Um, I wouldn't say that there's a one-stop shop for how to set up a cricket farm yet, uh, but, the, I mean, the basics are there. We, we know that uh, the insects can be raised in modular environment, and that's how we do it at our farm, where you have thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of insects living in an in a enclosed environment where you can regulate the temperature and the humidity, uh, to amenable conditions. Um, and then you're going to, like we do, we have a consistent feed that we give them, so we have a, a standard end product in terms of flavor and nutrition. Um, and they grow for about six to eight weeks before they're ready to harvest, so they have a very quick growth rate. Uh, and they breed prolifically, so they breed thousands of eggs. You can get thousands of eggs from one cricket. Uh, so you can, you know, kind of, you can see that this is a very, uh, quick source of protein, a very prolific source of protein, and because they have such a high conversion ratio, turning their food into body mass, um, they're more feed efficient than other livestock options. They use a fraction of the water of other livestock options, and they produce a fraction of the greenhouse gases. 
Uh, and of course, because we can grow them modularly, we can stack them vertically. So we can be very space efficient uh, geographically when we're growing the insects. Um, but again, this is a, it's, a, it's a nascent industry, and so we're still learning the best practices. We're still refining our techniques, and there's still a lot of room to grow to increase the, the uh, efficiency of the process. So, I mean, I basically start out with some cricket eggs, and um, can you talk, like, yeah. what, what type of a container are, are they in? And then can you talk a little bit about, like, the feed and water cycle, how, how that works? Yeah, yeah. So the, and we've seen environments made out of everything from cardboard and plyboard. There's uh, open-air cement enclosures. Uh, that we've seen it from other countries. There's actually a really great uh, couple of reports from the UNFAO looking at programs they did in Thailand and Lao PDR where they encourage uh, farmers to start growing crickets um, in a very uh, economically you know, efficient fashion uh, for areas without a lot of resources. Um, so on the, on the, the very low-end scale, it can, you can have an enclosure made out of just about anything that will keep them in. Uh, but, of course, on the high end, for the potential industrial applications, we've seen everything from fabricated, you know, plastic enclosures, metal enclosures, plexiglass. Um, the the material of the enclosure is much less important than the, I think, the other components, the diet that you're giving them, the amount uh, of crowding. Uh, the crickets, they like to be uh, living in, in very teeming, dark, cramped conditions, but they also like to have their hidey holes. So in all of our enclosures, we have lots of uh, substrate for them to climb on, lots of nooks and crannies for them to hide in when they need to be alone. Uh, but they're still living with you know, thousands and thousands of their, their brothers and sisters. And uh, we feed them on a daily basis. We change their waters on a daily or twice daily basis, depending on the life cycle. Um, and they're, I mean, they're a rather hardy species. I right. think it's, it's a testament to the, the ease uh, in terms of, of, you know, anybody could basically start cricket farming. Uh, looking at the, these reports from Thailand and Lao PDR, where you have people who've never farmed crickets in their life, and within a short time, they're able to grow their own food. So um, size-wise, are we talking something like like a kind of contain the containers that you guys use in your facility? Um, you know, because you said you can be they can they're like kind of stackable and mobile. So is it like mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know like a shoebox, like a like a chicken box? Like how big of a space are we talking about? I'd I'd say that when you're when you're talking about on an, on an industrial scale, you're going to have containers that are you know ten feet long by okay three feet wide, three feet tall. Uh, but on a micro-farming scale, if somebody wanted to start growing them in their own backyard or their own closet, um, you could certainly have a container that's the size of a, a chicken coop uh, or smaller. Um, there's some really interesting micro-farming prototypes that are already out on the Internet for growing a number of different species in your home. Uh, I personally raised mealworms for about nine months in my own home just using Tupperware containers. Um, I think that's one of the exciting things about this idea, if we can get buy-in from the public, is that it's a way for people to grow their own food and know where their food is coming from and what's going into their food, which is becoming a more and more important issue for a lot of consumers. 
Yeah, no, I would definitely, I would definitely agree with you there. So I'm sitting right now in the middle of a shipping container, which I have to imagine from your description sounds about like the size of a cricket container uh, for an industrial facility. And then, so it's not just an empty box. There's like spaces um, and like different kind of levels within that container for the crickets to kind of move around in or to be kind of like essentially like stimulated by so it's not just like a box full of crickets interesting yeah you don't just want empty space you want a lot of surface area for them to crawl on you want a lot of areas for them to to move around and be active but also to hide and then when you feed them i mean are you or water them are you just like putting out like uh, a bowl of water or like a, a trough of feed or is there some other delivery method well, and again, from the kind of the, the, the low-maintenance end, you could absolutely just put out a dish of, of feed and a, and a, a bowl of water. Um, on the industrial side, there's a lot of interesting uh, innovations being worked on right now uh, using automatic feeders, using drip feeders for the water. Um, I can't disclose what we're currently doing, but I think there's, there's certainly some good examples online of, of very low-maintenance ways to do this. Um, and the, the feed, you know, we feed them a very specific certified organic diet. And part of that is for the standard in nutrition and flavor of the crickets. And part of that is the, the demand from the consumer that we're really catering to. Um, but the crickets themselves can grow on a really wide variety of feed inputs. So if you were raising them in your home, you could feed them your potato peels, your carrot tops, your apple cores, your watermelon rinds. Um, as well as you know, oats, grains, corn, uh, and you you would you'd want to have it finely milled if it's a hard grain, mm-hmm. uh, so they can easily eat it. Um, but the 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 wetter things like the pre-consumer food waste, uh, they'll be able to get moisture out of that, and so they're even more efficient in that terms when you're able to use you know pre-consumer waste like that on a small scale. And there's some really interesting research on the industrial side of collecting and standardizing pre-consumer waste as a potential input to create kind of a closed-loop system where we can take that sort of organic matter, and rather than putting it in a landfill, we can use that as the feed source for high-quality protein. And, well, kind of on that waste issue, what what's the, like, cricket waste situation? <sighs> Compared to just about any other livestock, it's extremely clean. Uh, the cricket poop, which uh, is called frass, F-A-R-S-S, uh, is used as a component for high-quality fertilizers. And so at the end of the day, once the crickets are harvested, we're able to collect all of their detritus, and that's actually now another product coming out of the system. So we're not just off-putting a lot of waste water, a lot of manure, like other livestock have to. Uh, we actually get to eliminate those sort of negative outputs from the industry. Wow. So I, you know, I have to say like I spent, um, I spent a year living upstate working on a rare breed pig farm. And one of the things I found the most surprising was that when it came time to load the pigs up onto the trailer to bring them to the slaughterhouse, it, it literally involved us kind of like running around the field with our arms spread out wide, you know, (laughs) hollering like, come on, pig. And, you know, getting them into like a smaller kind of shoot area and then really kind of like one by one um, selecting and maneuvering animals onto a trailer. And I I was just it was like almost kind of 
comically labor intensive. Um, <laughs> yeah. at, you know, it's definitely like a small scale um, farm. So what is the like, what is the kind of like uh, exit process for the crickets? And I know um, you did note on the site um, kind of talking about how they're how, you know, how, they, how they're, I don't know, slaughtered is not the right, I mean, I'm guessing slaughtered is not the right word, but maybe that is the right word. But cold. can you, cold, yeah. So how do you get them out of the shipping container and, and how are they, how, how are they killed? Like, what's that next step? For us, um, the method we've used most recently, and, and we're actually exploring a few different new methodologies, but we've taken the, the, the stackable, components inside there where the crickets are able to climb on and you can take those out of the box and just shake the crickets out into another box you could certainly hand harvest if you wanted to go in there with tiny little lassos but (laughs) it's a lot more time efficient to let the crickets crawl up onto that material and then just shake them off into a new bin where you can then take them put them into a room and lower the temperature so that they go into hibernation before they expire and so it's a very uh, it, there's no violent death. There's no change in state for the insect. It's a very humane way of culling them, uh, and it's also very clean. And and you know, you're, we're not chasing crickets around the farm, right? Right. Kind of situation. Yeah. Um, well, I want one more question, then we're going to take a quick station break. What does it sound yeah. like in there? I'm sorry, say again. What does it sound like? Oh uh, well. It's so funny. You can always tell when we have crickets that are ready to mate because they start chirping when they get to their sexual maturity. So there's some times where we have mostly babies and it's fairly quiet, but when we've got a a big cycle of of crickets ready to get it on, the farm workers wear headphones because it's so loud. Wow, wow. Okay, well, that is kind of what I expected. I I was trying to think of a good kind of crickets radio joke but i haven't come up with one maybe you have one <laughs> if you do share it with us after the break we're gonna we're gonna hang tight for just one second uh you're listening to the farm report and we'll be right back listening to Intrigue by Obey City. This is the Farm Report on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app, the sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. 
This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. All right, we are back. You are listening to The Farm Report, and we are on the line with Nathan Allen from Aspire, and we are talking crickets. So you, we kind of got up to the point of harvest uh, in the first half of the show. And so I want to kind of continue on this cricket journey. Um, after the, the crickets have been called, you know, what is the next step in your processing? Um, how did they get kind of like cleaned or dried or frozen or like you have the whole cricket, it's dead, now what? Yeah, so we take the crickets once they're frozen. And you want to make sure that you leave them frozen for 24 hours just to make sure you don't have any that come back. That has happened. <laughs> We've had some, some very amusing kitchen stories of, of people not keeping them frozen long enough uh, in the early days. But, yeah, once they're frozen, we take them to our uh, commercial kitchen commissary that we process them in. Uh, they're washed and cleaned. Then we uh, basically dry roast them using convection heat. Uh, and then they're uh, able to be milled into the powder. Uh, and that is then sent on to home consumers, uh, bakers, chefs, and product makers. And a good number of our clients are actually making consumer-facing goods, like the, the chips and the crackers and the granolas and the cookies we mentioned earlier, um, and putting them on the market so people can have the chance at that first bite. So, yeah, I mean, can you distinguish, I hear the word cricket powder, and I also hear the word cricket flour often used. Is there a difference? Yes, that's a very good point. It's definitely a misnomer. Um, Cricket flour is usually used to denote that cricket powder, which is 100% crickets, has been blended with another medium uh, to use as a one-to-one substitution. So, for instance, there's a few companies that do sell a cricket baking flour, and it's cricket powder mixed with a number of other flowers, and some of those are blended with things like uh, cassava and uh, arrowroot and coconut for a gluten-free baker, um, or it can be just be mixed with traditional flowers. Um, the important thing to remember is that if you're baking with cricket powder, it's not a one-to-one substitution. It doesn't have rising properties the way flour does. It's much more oily. And we generally recommend about a 20% substitution ratio for, for general baking recipes. But, of course, as we learn more about the product and as we have more innovative chefs and bakers play with it, we're getting really good feedback. You know, for instance, earlier I mentioned a a cricket powder pizza dough. Um, They were able to use 30% uh, of the the final recipe was the cricket powder, which is a really high amount. But it worked really well for the pizza dough. For a cookie, you put 30% in there, and it's going to start to get a little gritty. so it's, it's still kind of a, a very experimental phase, which is great because we get a lot of feedback from our customers and our, our clients uh, that we're then able to then share out with the public as to how to use this product in the home kitchen. So I want to do a little kind of compare and contrast at this point um, where we're kind of looking at the um, kind of inputs and outputs of of producing food um, in this way, and then also kind of the basic nutritional facts of crickets and how they compare to other livestock. And I don't know if it's more useful to do like crickets to beef or crickets to chicken, or or how do you guys usually kind of tell that story? Well, so I think there's two ways to look at crickets, and one is the powder, of course, um, but then the other is the whole cricket. And we certainly have had people interested in cooking with the whole cricket. Uh, 
the whole cricket itself is going to have less protein than, say, beef or pork. Uh, it's going to be closer to a fish, um, and that's because it has a lot of the water weight still in there. Um, but in addition to that protein, it's going to have really high amounts of iron and calcium, magnesium, uh, vitamins and minerals like zinc and copper, niacin and phosphorus, B6 and 12 vitamins, and omega-6s and 3s in the 3 to 1 ratio you want, um, above and beyond other animal proteins. Now, when you take it and you turn it into the powder, you've taken all that water out and really condensed the nutrition. So when we have cricket powder and we're comparing it to, say, dried, you know, a beef jerky or dried beef, um, which is going to be around 50% protein, the cricket powder is between 65 and 70% protein. And it is a complete protein, so it does have all the essential amino acids that your body needs. And the early reports we've seen show that it has higher amounts of the essential amino acids than beef and chicken and pork. Um, so it's, it's exciting when you, when you actually do a side-by-side comparison and you see, okay, I'm getting more protein and better protein, plus I'm getting more iron and calcium and all these vitamins and minerals, and I'm getting less of the bad fats that, I'm, that are commonly associated with some of the other meats we eat. So um, what about kind of like input-output? Like I know we talk a lot about like feed conversion in, in animal mm-hmm. production. So how do, how do crickets compare in, in that scenario? Uh, a general breakdown, and, and we like to use the, the FAO, the UNFAO's uh, reports. We haven't had uh, a lot of concerted research done uh, beyond that, but we're, we're now at the point where a lot of that research is being done, which is exciting. But generally speaking, if you have 10 pounds of feed, you're going to get about a pound of beef. You're going to get about three pounds of pork. You'll get about five pounds of chicken, and you'll get between eight and nine pounds of crickets. So right off the bat, we can see with the same amount of feed input, and this, I mean, this is an important economic factor for farmers. Feed costs are high. You're going to get a lot more in product out of it. And then when we look at the amount of the actual animal that's used, you know, when we're looking at something like a cow, we can use half the animal. Uh, with the crickets, we're using 100% of the animal. So we're not wasting any of that in the, in the food process. Um, from a water perspective, uh, I, I don't want to quote without having anything in front of me, but it, it's astronomically less water for the same amount of food, uh, something in the range of 2,000 times less water per pound of meat produced. Um, so per, and that's really pertinent for places here in Texas. We've had drought conditions. Certainly in California right now, drought conditions are, are extreme. And if we had farmers that were growing insects uh, as opposed to other livestock options, we may be able to get a lot more food out of the system with a lot less water. Um, and from a geographic footprint, you know, I'd, I'd say easily you can grow just as much meat on a tenth of the land when you're comparing it to something like beef protein. Uh, and from the greenhouse gases, we've seen uh, a pound of beef produces something like 2,000-plus uh, GHGs, whereas a cricket will produce approximately uh, 10 or less. So an astronomical difference in the amount of ammonia and nitrogen, nitrous oxide, all of those gases that are coming out of the livestock industry. Uh, we would be missing the kind of like scenic view of, of a beautiful beef ranch or pastured poultry farm, um, I'm assuming, <laughs> with, with a cricket production, um, probably not much to look at. 
No, but think of all the beautiful parkland and forest land that we can save. Oh, and that's touche. much prettier to look at than a bunch of cows. <laughs> well, I, I think those might be fighting words for some, but um, one of the other <laughs> things I want to talk about is, um, you know, obviously when we're, when, when we're talking, um, you know, protein from animal sources, that is an industry here in the U.S. has in, incredibly, um, you know, has, has an intense like regulatory oversight and environment. There are real safety concerns with regards to um, different types of uh, bacterial contaminations and foodborne illness. When we're looking at kind of the safety conversation, um, you know, what is the oversight for the cricket industry look like currently and what are the safety concerns? Well, yeah, let's actually start with the safety concerns because I think the the beauty of, of edible insects is that we mitigate a lot of the, the potential um, harms that we've seen so far. So, for instance, if your concern is a zoonosis or a, an animal-to-human disease, things like mad cow disease, avian flu has been particularly pertinent recently here in the U.S., swine flu. Insects are so far genetically removed from humans that there there is no risk of that sort of transmission from animal to human. Um, so right there we have a, a, a very big benefit. Uh, the insects don't have to be raised using hormones or antibiotics, which is another very pertinent concern in the livestock industry. The amount of antibiotics that we have to use and the effects that has on the population, we don't have that problem. Um, and then when we're talking about regulation, uh, again, this is a brand-new industry, and the, the industry is ahead of the regulations right now um, because, you know, organizations like the FDA and the USDA they move at a pace that, that is very cautious. Um, and the industry as a whole has been very good about being in constant touch with our municipal and our state health departments, our federal regulatory agencies like FDA and USDA, to make sure that we're abiding by any and all potentially applicable rules. We follow all of the standard good manufacturing practices. We have a, a, a HASPA plan in place, which is quickly becoming the, the industry standard. Um, and, and like I said, we're, we're open to working with those regulatory agencies, not just to make sure that we're doing it right, but also to make sure that the rules that are put into place are applicable and effective um, and don't allow the bar to start too low. Um, one of the, the early guidance we, we got from the FDA is that food products made for humans cannot use insects that are wild harvested or grown for feed, for lizard food or for bait. And so I think that's, that's a perfect example of the FDA, while not having any official rules, giving very clear guidance to the industry to say that if you're going to use this as a human food, it has to be treated like a human food. Um, and so we've worked with those agencies so that when those rulings do become official, it will be difficult for somebody to introduce a low-quality product into the industry. And I think at the end of the day, that's a good safeguard for consumers. So, I mean, you are obviously great at your job. Um, I feel like, um, you you know, I'm I'm like, I'm on board. I'm like, crickets, let's do it. I I would have to say kind of at this point, you know, really one of the bigger hurdles for you seems like when I sit down to a plate of 100 grams of cricket protein versus 100 grams of, you know, grass-fed steak or chicken, um, that's, that's where the kind of like 
challenges is going to come is kind of convincing consumers to forego one for the other. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think it has to be a question of foregoing one for the other. Um, and that's the beauty of the cricket powder is that you don't have to not eat a hamburger if you still want to eat a hamburger. But if you can have a hamburger with a cricket bun, why wouldn't you? <laughs> I, I don't even know where to start with that one. But, but. Well, I, think, I think we're seeing, and, and I think the public has really shown uh, the industry that, that they're supportive out of the, you know, there's a dozen different products that are currently on the market that are available for purchase to the public that include crickets as an ingredient. And those companies, I think five out of the six, were started with a crowdfunding campaign like Kickstarter. Yeah. So you have, you have these companies that have this crazy idea. It seems so far out of the field. And yet it's not the... the it, the industries, it's not the corporations or the infrastructure that's funding this idea. It's the public that says, yes, I, I see why this is needed. I see why this is beneficial. I see why it's nutritious. I see why it's resource efficient. And I want these products to be put on the market. I want access to these products. And it's been fantastic seeing, you know, one after another of these companies able to get the funding to start their, their you know, their products. Um, through the public, and I think that's that's also key for us to remember that there's we're kind of approaching the public from two different directions. One is the bottom-up direction where we introduce the idea of cricket powder, cricket protein, to the staple foods that we all love and know: granola and crackers and cakes and muffins and cookies. And that's a really easy way to get a lot of people to try it, wrap their head around it, realize that it's not gross, it's not squishy, but it's actually delicious. But they don't have to see it. And then, of course, the reverse of that is the the top-down approach, very similar to what we saw happen with sushi between the 60s and the 80s, where sushi was dangerous and disgusting at first, but because it was put on the menus at uh, destination restaurants with prominent chefs, um, it became a desirable food. And so that's what we're seeing here in Austin, where a lot of the restaurants that are really pushing the boundaries of food, you know, locally sourced uh, organically fed, um, you know, getting their ingredients from the farmer's market, these type of restaurants where people know that the food's going to be amazing. If you go into that restaurant and there's an insect on the menu, you trust the chef, and it's something that's desirable. Uh, a fun little little side anecdote, recently here during South by Southwest, uh, a big festival in Austin, we had a couple restaurants that were serving crickets on the menu, and we had the... Uh, the drummer from um, uh, Questlove, the drummer from The Roots, went into a local restaurant and ordered a cricket salad from, a, from the chef and left it and Instagrammed it and tweeted it. And that's, that's what we need. We need to have people who can act as a mouthpiece to the public and say, look, I'm a celebrity, I'm a musician, you know, people, I have, I have fans, I have followers, and I'm willing to eat this. I'm willing to do this. Um, just two days ago on the Late Late Show, David George Gordon, the bug chef, served tarantulas and grasshoppers and ants um, to Titus Burgess, uh, a, a Netflix star, and to uh, Anna, whose name, last name escapes me. <laughs> I'm <laughs> not going to be like no help TV here. Right now. <laughs> Um, well, so it's, yeah, it's so it's, it's getting out there, yeah. Endorsing it. 
Yeah, no, no, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So kind of um, just wrapping up here, obviously, uh, we'll see you guys out at the Slow Meat Conference in Denver, uh, beginning of June, June 4th through 6th. What are you hoping to, mm-hmm. to get from the conference? Why was that the right space for you guys? Well, I think there's two things. One is to introduce insects as a meat and, and make sure that people are looking at it as a meat and as a food so that we can destigmatize it. Uh, and the second thing is to introduce the idea of insects as an animal feed. And that's, uh, you know, I wish we had more time because that's a really exciting potential for agriculture with the price of fish meal and soybeans constantly going up. Uh, large-scale agricultural feed producers are looking for new ways to get the nutrients into the feed. And insects provide a very economically and environmentally sustainable alternative to things like fish meal and soybeans. Uh, so I think there's a really exciting opportunity within the, the, the agricultural industrial complex to look at some new resources that have been underutilized. And that's what we're hoping to, to put we're hoping to put the bug in their ear. <laughs> I was waiting for it. I'm like, I know there's going to be a joke in here somewhere. <laughs> well, Nathan, thank you so much. Uh, we will definitely have to um, have you back on to kind of continue that line of inquiry. It sounds super interesting. I really appreciate you taking some time to join us on the show today. Absolutely. And if there's any questions from your listeners, you can find us on Twitter at Aspire America. Awesome. Um, well, with that, uh, I'm going to jump into a, um, a little bit of a new thing here on the Farm Report, uh, where I blatantly steal ideas I like from other podcasts and repurpose them as my own. Um, and today I want to give a shout out to a new podcast on my radar called Another Round. Um, they just put out their seventh episode. Definitely worth checking them out. You can find them on Stitcher or iTunes. Um, and they do a wonderful segment in their show called... Um, buying around, and they they talk a little bit about who you want to buy around for that week. And I want to give a shout out to a fellow Heritage host, uh, Jimmy Carbone. Uh, he hosts a weekly show here on the Heritage Radio Network called Beer Sessions Radio. He brings together kind of leaders and thought makers and brewers and bartenders from the craft beer movement. Um, but also kind of farmers um, and water activists. Really great show. Airs live on Tuesday nights. Um, I want to buy Jimmy around. Um, Jimmy's uh, business has been really impacted the last couple of weeks due to a gas explosion um, over on 2nd Avenue close to where he's located. And we were out supporting last night, um, kind of hanging and toasting at the bar. And it was really striking. It's the first time I had been over there that literally the building up to his doorstep was completely demolished. And Jimmy is a good friend and a longtime supporter of a lot of great things in the food industry. So if you are a beer fan, um, definitely check out his show. If you're local to the New York area, pop by Jimmy's number 43 for a a pint of something delicious. And uh, Jimmy, this one's for you. Thank you so much for making your way through another episode of The Farm Report. We are coming to you live every Thursday at 1 o'clock. You can also find us on iTunes or Stitcher for your on-demand listening pleasure. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Please leave a review. It definitely helps other people find the show. Um, It also makes me feel really good, no matter what you say. But, you know, say good stuff. And um, if you want to hear more from me, check me out on Twitter, Aaron underscore Fairbanks. 
Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned in. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.